and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life now. Let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us for another great episode today. But before we get to today's guest, I want to let you know how you might be able to help us out here at the podcast. So first of all, thanks for being here. Thanks for listening. Thanks for sharing these conversations. Those of you that post these conversations on social media. I see it. I read it. I appreciate it. And if you like today's episode, we would be super grateful if you went over to iTunes and wrote us a review, ideally five stars, but we won't hold it against you if it's less. And just a reminder that when you share these conversations, when you go over to iTunes, it really helps us expand our reach. If this is your first time here, welcome. I work as an executive coach and a mental performance coach where I get to work with executives and athletes, organizations and sports coaches and help them get from where they are to where they want to go. And I love what I do for a living. And I fired up this podcast to learn from others who are on a similar path or a similar journey and are thinking intentionally about how they are showing up every single day. Day. And today's guest is one of those people that I'm just so grateful to connect with via the podcast. So Betsy Butterick is somebody who I got connected to from a former podcast guest, Jamie Beckler. Shout out to Jamie for connecting us. And you're going to find out real quick that Betsy is articulate with her words, passionate about the work that she does, and really thoughtful about where she's been and where she wants to go. So she works as a coach and a communication specialist. And her work is right at that intersection of coaching sports coaches. She loves to coach coaches and also help them figure out how they're delivering messaging to their teams and organizations. She is a thoughtful person. She's been in the trenches as a basketball coach, and she's really living her purpose and her desire to help make an impact with organizations and teams. She really works with a ton of college sports teams. And once again, she coaches coaches and helps them with their communication. So she's going to get into some of the mechanics of that while sharing her journey and her story and why she fell in love with coaching. So without further ado, I'm so excited to present to you, Betsy Butterick. Betsy, so excited to chat with you today in the midst of some chaos in our society and in our world. And it's so cool. I just want to start. You are, are doing a 
webinar tomorrow for a lot of NCAA administration, coaches, people, and leadership with uh, college sports. I'd love to just start there. Like, why are you doing this right now? Why are you uh, going to work and, and trying to provide information and resources for free for people to learn and grow and, and, and develop themselves? Sure. First of all, thanks for having me on, Brian. I'm really excited to talk with you. And to answer that first question, this, you know, why am I going to work? There's nowhere else to go. It's social isolation. This is a, it's a privilege to be able to work remotely and to not have, I'll say, my work needing to stop because of the changes that we are currently experiencing, not only in the athletic community, but as a country, as a global community, and to be able to continue to work from anywhere that I am. That's a privilege, and I recognize that. That said, a lot of the speaking engagements have been canceled as we stay away from group activities. But even when the money stops, the work never does. And this was my best shot, best guess at how can I be of service in a time of need to the community that I feel so deeply connected to. And the idea for the webinar came out of response from a question that was asked to me by an AP reporter in the Bay Area about what I was doing to work with the teams that I have as clients to support them during this time. And my first thought was, man, not enough. And this was Friday. And it, you know, the announcement had just come out from the NCAA on Thursday. And by Friday afternoon, I decided, you know, why don't we do a webinar called Game On, A Season of Choice, and structure it in a way that I do my best to give coaches and administrators options for how can we work with our student athletes to acknowledge and validate the reality of their situation, this loss that they're experiencing in, in terms of their season, and write a different story. How can we do things constructively during this time of isolation to build connection, to build community, to strengthen our teams and the individuals on those teams, instead of focusing on what we can't do, what can we do, and how can we start to do it as soon as possible, and, and rewrite the history from March 12th being the day that people will remember as the day that sports stopped to telling a better story about how the athletic community responded. That's, that's the goal of tomorrow's webinar. Is this something that if it wasn't triggered by that AP, that, that reporter, you think you would have done, or do you like, you think this is inside of you? This is the way you just react or respond to these types of situations. Give me some context there. Sure. Great question. I, I would like to say, yes, this is something that would have come about at some point. And I say that knowing I went to bed on Thursday night and since hearing the news Thursday afternoon, around the same time many of our student athletes did, unfortunately, not from their coaches, but through social media, I, I went to bed with such a heavy heart. And being a former basketball coach, you, you hit that point every single season where, unless you've just won the national championship, your season ends abruptly and it's with a loss and you wake up the next day and all of a sudden there's no practice to go to. There's nothing to plan for. There's no game film to watch, even though you'll likely rewatch the game you just lost because you know, we're wired that way, but there's this emptiness, this void every season. And I think during the course of a coaching career, you learn not to fill that void simply to, to be in that space and to understand that it's coming. The difference with the loss that the athletic community felt last week is there was no timeline in terms of preparation. All of a sudden it was just gone. And I was talking with Katie McGann, who's one of the associate athletic directors at UC San Diego and a friend of mine. She's the compliance uh, person for UCSD and, 
and we were talking yesterday and I had said, it's kind of like a season ending injury, except everyone's perfectly healthy and capable of playing. And she said, actually, Beth, I think it's more like a car accident or a traumatic event where you thought you had more time. And now all of a sudden something or someone that you love deeply is gone and there's nothing that you can do about it. And to re to realize the gravity of loss that our athletic community is facing administrators, coaches, student athletes, where some of them, even if they're granted, let's say a fifth year, they're a spring sports student athlete and they've been granted another year of eligibility. That's not a realistic option for many student athletes. You know, maybe they've already accepted a job that they're going to step into. Maybe they can't financially afford another year of school. Um, there's so many different variables that contribute to what the landscape looks like for individuals moving forward. And to feel that loss and that weight, historically, I wouldn't say I'm a fixer, but I'm the distant assistant. You know, I'm the one that's looking to support the goals and directions of the head coach for so many programs these days. And, and how can I be of service in a way that matters? Combined with having sometimes arguably a very optimistic outset, I will look for the best in situations. Uh, a friend of mine tells a great story called This Is Good. And it's in that mindset of in every adversity, there is likely something positive that we can do, a step that we can take, operating from that, that locating space of the new normal. And this webinar was the goal of how do we not do that individually, but come together collectively and start to crowdsource ways that we as a community can move forward from the space. Do you think you're wired to think optimistically or look for solutions? Or was that something that you were brought up with? Or where did that come from for you? Great question. I wish I knew the scientific answer. I wish you could have mapped my brain and said, yes, you were born this way. You were wired this way. It's definitely, in my understanding of it, been a learned process. From an early age, my parents taught my twin brother and I control what you can control. And, and interesting, he lives in Manhattan. So I'm in San Diego. He's in Manhattan. We're on opposite sides of the coast. And Chris, my twin brother, is part of LinkedIn's global management team and was personally tasked with heading up LinkedIn's corporate response to COVID-19. So we are working in very similar capacities in dramatically different spaces. And I think that speaks to, in part, the way that we were raised of, you can complain or you can focus on what you can do next. And you know, there was a rule in our house, no whining aloud when we were growing up because it doesn't serve a purpose. And recognizing that people need to process, they need to vent and validating what's true for them while also recognizing that you, you can sit in this for however long you need to. And when you're ready, taking the next step, the, the cure for, for grief is action. Um, I love that quote, especially living by the Pacific, the cure for everything is salt water, sweat, tears, or the sea. I've been to the beach a few times since last Thursday. And, and what can we do? Sometimes there's nothing you can do. And yet when there is, let's take that step. So am I wired that way? I feel like I've always been, um, but I think it was absolutely supported by the way that I was raised to, to be a helper, to be a supporter, to, to do what you can do, control what you can control, knowing that life is largely uncontrollable. Can you find those small moments? You told me before we fired up the microphones that you grew up, you grew up in the Bay Area, correct? I did. But your brother, your twin brother, is there, is there any other siblings or is it just the two of you? There is. Our younger sister, Kate, lives in Austin. Okay, we so you've got born, like everything covered yeah, we're here pretty now. Spread out. We were born, uh, Chris and I were born in Connecticut. We lived in 
Tennessee until we were six and then Pennsylvania until we were 11 and then moved to the Bay Area. So I was mostly raised in California. I would say I'm a Californian. And yet, yes, the, the Butterick children are spanned across the country. Because <laughs> twins, I'm fascinated by twins. And Me too. When I hear New York City and I hear San Diego, I hear very different environments. Do those environments speak to you and your twin brother? And is is your sister just weird in Austin? Is that what she, <laughs> she is? Do the, do the cities fit the personalities? They do. And that's a great question. And I think, you know, you, you can kind of think of that children's book, City Mouse, Country Mouse. Chris before he lived in New York City, he lived in Los Angeles for almost 10 years. He went to UCLA and then he got a job and worked his way up through a company that started with 13 people. When he left, I believe there were 280 and he had occupied almost every position except CEO. And he loved Los Angeles. And I coached at Occidental College. So in, at one point we were living in Los Angeles for a four year period at the same time. And I wasn't really a fan of it. Like, there's, you know, there's no space and there's concrete everywhere and, and buildings touch each other and, and there's no grass. And I visited him and his wife. They have a, a beautiful baby, Simone, who is now just over three months old. I was able to visit them, thankfully, before the outbreak really hit the U.S. back in February. And same thing, they live in Manhattan. It, um, it just, it's so different and it does fit our personalities. My brother is fantastic at, at problem solving and finding solutions. I mean, that was his role in LinkedIn for a long time as their workplace manager for the Americas. How do you create the space and the structure to allow people to do their best work and to enjoy coming to work? And that was his responsibility and, and he's so good at it. And I have, a, I'll, I'll say a more laid back type of style and and with that comes physical space and sunshine. I mean, sunshine, I mean, not that my brother's not a sunny guy, but sunshine is really central to my health and well-being. And then our sister Kate is, is a lovely blend of both of us. And unlike either of us, I mean, she's her own unique individual. Seven years is a lot growing up, but my twin brother has red hair and so does my younger sister. So they sort of bookend, you know, the redheads in the family. Um, yeah, it's great. It's a lovely mix. Family is really important to me. And I think I can't thank my parents enough for the way that they raised us and specifically how they loved each other. I mean, their love for each other, their relationship is really what allowed us to become the people that we are. And I'm forever grateful. What were the values that they passed down to the three of you? Love is the most important thing. I mean, that really is. Uh, if you have love, you can figure out the rest. If there was one central thing. And I know there are certain situations where it feels like love isn't enough. But when you start from that place, you'll be surprised at, at how many resources you really have. Manners were a big thing growing up. They're still a big thing. I used to love as a coach, whether it was for our team or for visiting teams, holding a door open, simply to notice how many people said thank you or not. There's so many opportunities in our day-to-day -day for gratitude, and we miss them all the time. And they're right there. And I think if we took an intentional moment to recognize or, or seek out more of them, the world might be a better place. And then the importance of listening and communicating, that things will be hard, there will be challenges, and our ability to talk about them and to have dialogue around them is something that we were, we were raised to understand and, and hold important. What did your parents do for a living? My dad was in healthcare consulting, is still in healthcare consulting. And my mom was in... 
I'm trying to remember, they both fenced at Penn State University. So they were both Nittany Lions. And my mom, she was with Armstrong before we were born. And then she was a stay-at-home mom for most of our life while pursuing her passion for photography. When we were old enough, she opened up her own studio. She's done photography work for a lot of her career. But I mean, my mom is a creative. She, on her 60th birthday, decided that she wanted to learn how to code. And she went back to school and code camp. And she now creates custom websites, especially for older folks who find themselves technologically challenged and a little disconnected from working with a, a you know a Gen Zer, uh, um, trying to create a website for their their small mom and pop shop. So she doesn't yeah. sound cool at all. Not no, at all. yeah, terribly uncool. Yeah, <laughs> and she's my so cool. creative muse, and I I call her several times a week. Uh, she's been the biggest support they both have really in in doing this business, this crazy idea, this made up job of hey, I think I want to coach coaches and be a communication specialist. They're like, great, how can we help? You know, um, and they put themselves through college, so I think that value of hard work. They told us early on in life, especially having twins, you can go wherever you want to go, and you'll need to pay for it yourself. So my brother and I knew that early on, and and this idea of working for and valuing hard work and earning things through effort, sustained effort over time, that was absolutely a value that we were raised with and that we have benefited from in the pursuits that we've, that we've entered into as adults. Fencing, not passed yeah. down to any of you or your siblings? No, I don't stab people for fun. Um, we had those little Nerf fencing things. I don't know if you've ever seen them, but they had these flip down panels that when you hit them around the, what would be the guard of the blade, I had the most incredible opportunity. There was a fencing tournament down here in San Diego, right in Encinitas near where I live. My mom is now 64. This was last year, so she was 63. And she came and entered into this women's FA tournament. She had not entered a tournament in 40 years. And she came down and she fenced. The next oldest person in this tournament was 19. And my mom came in second. She lost in the championship bout. And I was unbelievably moved to tears, proud of her fight and resilience. You know, here's this white haired old lady that is giving it her best and competing with these young kids. And it was such an inspiration for me to watch, but also to see the effect that she had occupying that space with these younger women. So cool. But no, none of us got the fencing gene. And I was the only one in my family to play basketball. So our, our sports, <laughs> our sports abilities were very varied in my family. Why do you think they didn't pass it down? If, if your mom is able to go out there in her 60s and yeah. say, you know what, I'm still going to compete at this. It's clear that she has some sort of passion or internal love and drive for that sport. Yeah. It's also such a unique sport. I, had, I knew one, one guy growing up that fenced, Matt Carbone. I don't know, remember why I remember. I think it was him. I think it was him. I think he was a very good fencer and you would hear about him, but fencing certainly wasn't big where I grew up and he was the only one I knew doing it. Why do you think they didn't pass that, that sword on to you? It's a great question. I think, and it's funny because our, our favorite movie as a family is princess bride, you know, and you talk about swashbuckling and fencing and swordplay. And honestly, as a child, I can't even remember it being a big deal. What I knew from an early age was in college specifically, my dad was a very talented fencer and it came to the point where he needed to make a decision between pursuing a spot on the USA team or marrying my mom. And my parents got married at 19 and 20. And I would argue he made the right choice, but financially they couldn't afford to do both. 
And, and so he let that dream go. And, and I don't know if it was from having had to let that dream go that it wasn't talked about. What I think is most true is my parents were very intentional, especially having boy girl twins of one raising us in a gender neutral household. I played with balls. My brother played with dolls. Like there were just, there were, there was nothing that was not okay or was no, you're a boy. You can't do that. No, you're a girl. You can't do that. Elementary school was really tough for us because I played football with the boys and my brother played four square with the girls and the teasing from kids at that age of, you know, you were switched in the womb. You should have been the boy. He should have been the girl. It it was so unfair. And it put a, a distance between us that we were, really only able to to talk about from a place of understanding as adults and people would compare us all the time in ways that we were never compared at home and my parents were super intentional about whatever you were interested in or wanted to do and i think this is why we were never brought up as spencers is because it wasn't about them it was about us they understood and articulated from an early age their role as parents was to support the wise, wonderful human beings that we already were in the ways that we wanted to express ourselves. And that was it. So fencing was never, you must do this. It was an option if you wanted it, but we had so many other things we were interested in. It simply never came to pass for, for, for us. But Betsy, I mean, what you just talked about is fascinating. I've got a three-year-old and a four-year-old, so they're not twins. Oh, congratulations. Yeah. Boy, girl, oldest one's a boy, youngest one's a girl. And, uh, they defy some stereotypes. My, my daughter who's younger is just fierce, like puts, puts my son in a headlock and, you know, like her favorite color is purple and his favorite color is blue. Like there's some parts that are stereotypical. And then there are other parts that I'm just like, man, she's a beast. And my wife and I are constantly trying to think of how do we cultivate the best version of them? And what does that look like? But something that I'm really interested to learn about from you, and this is coming from being a parent. So your parents were so clear on telling you to just be you, be authentically true to yourself. And I think most parents, even if they're not acting like that, believe that that's the right thing to do, at least the people that I interact with. But you're getting feedback outside the house that is going against what they're communicating to you. So they're saying, we don't care if you play four square football, you do what makes you happy, but outside of the house and look, it's also not lost on me that you moved around a lot before getting to age 11 in in California. And so there's also transitions going there and that's hard on, on kids, but how did you and your brother maintain your strength? And how did your parents maintain it when perhaps you came home from school crying or are bullied or getting feedback that what they're telling you might not be right? I I would just love to tease that out with you a little bit. Sure. And it's interesting thinking about the way and the time in which we were raised and, and the hot buttons and words of schools these days when we talk about bullying. We, we were definitely bullied and you know, we didn't have the focus on, on that type of behavior the way that we do today. The spotlight was not yet lit. There was no bulb in it. <laughs> it was simply kids being kids, right? And, well, and that and sexuality, right? Like, oh, absolutely. It's another like, massive, absolutely. massive, like uh, the words that were used. I don't know how old you are, but you're probably around the same age as me. The, the, the words that were used back then. Oh, sure. 
Yeah. I, and so Brian, I'll tell a personal story if I may. I'm 36 and I came out to my parents when I was 22 and I said something completely lame, like mom, dad, I think I might be gay. And it was because my girlfriend at the time was coming to visit and I thought I should probably tell them something. And my dad with his great sense of humor said, honestly, Bets, as soon as we knew we were having twins, we thought one of you might be gay, you know, <laughs> just statistically. And, and, and it was so lovely. And, and then my mom expressed, we, we don't care who you love so long as they love you as much as we love you. Ooh. So immediately I had a much more supportive coming out story and an experience than many of my peers or, or friends or colleagues. That said, when we were kids, I, and this, this sounds so terrible, it was the language of the time. In elementary school, I played a football game called Smear the Queer, which I, I, I to this day feel guilty about. And yet as a kid, especially in that time, we're talking, what, early 90s, that wasn't, that wasn't part of the larger conversation. I do remember very distinctly, it was when we were still living in Pennsylvania, so we had to be younger than 11. Phrases like that, so gay, were also, you know, and it meant that's silly or stupid or dumb. And I remember I was doing my homework sitting next to my brother and my pencil broke. And I said, oh, this pencil's so gay. And my brother, in his infinite wisdom at age 10 or 11 said, I don't think the pencil has a sexual preference. And where he got that language, I have no idea. I never said that's so gay about anything else in my life after that, because as soon as he said that, I thought, yeah, that makes sense. This doesn't, this doesn't equate at all. And that was it. It was gone. And I think my parents have done such a good job when you talk about you're getting one thing at home, you're getting another thing from your peers and your social environment. How do you navigate that? My parents did a phenomenal job of questioning our reality. So we might come home crying and saying, this person said this, they said, I should have been a boy. And they say, well, who do you feel like you are? And do you like playing football? Do you want to keep playing football? Great. Then that's what you do. And you have our love and support. They would ask us what we wanted. They would never tell us, oh, it's okay, or you'll be fine. And they always hugged us and loved us through our challenges, but we talked about them. And I think that enabled us over time, whether we knew it or not, especially as young kids, to be able to then have those conversations internally and also with others about who we were choosing to be and what we were choosing to do and, and the intention behind that. The tone with which you talk when you are talking about your parents is very even. It's very, well, it's very like matter of fact, but there's not a whole lot of intensity that I'm hearing to it. There's just like <laughs> these, these, like the, the, the words that your mom used when you came out to her, the, the way she used love and the, the way, I can't even articulate it the way that you did. Are you channeling them as you're, as you're talking? Is that what they sound like? It's just matter of fact, or am I missing a, because uh, I don't know these people, so I'm trying to see yeah. them. Um, they, it's interesting. Two things I'll say. One, growing up, <laughs> the the joke about my family is my, my parents should have been golf announcers because the Butterics are very quiet people. <laughs> We're not loud. As a sporting coach, that was a challenge for me to learn to project. And now as a public speaker, to learn to amplify my voice. Any student athlete that ever played for part of our programs will tell you I was not a coach that yelled. And yet the few times I did, they will be able to tell you exactly what I said. And I believe in, in using 
<laughs> volume, much like swearing when appropriate and for emphasis. And my dad, when we were growing up, whenever my dad was angry with us, he never got louder. He actually spoke, he spoke more softly. And that was when we knew like, oh, dad's mad, right? When he started to drop his voice, what happened in those moments though is we, we had to lean in and pay closer attention. And we knew dad was upset when dad got quieter. So I really, if you hear that evenness, that steadiness, it's, I grew up with that. I grew up with, there's nothing we can't talk about. All thoughts, opinions, feelings are valid and will be heard. And we'll get through this. And that was my foundation. I've learned to be in the way that I talk and present more animated. I would say I'm a very excited person. I, uh, I wear my heart on my sleeve. You can hear when I'm, when I'm amped about something. And when it comes to my parents, there's just this steady, endless, constant, unwavering support and love that sources so much of the work that I, I feel I'm able to do today and, and the way that I'm able to interact with and give to others. Yeah, you don't lack emotion. You don't lack passion. Uh, and But you're able to enunciate words in a way that is clean and clear. Thank you. And I could hear you tapping into your parents when you were describing them, where it's actually interesting because you actually, when you were explaining what they would say, you didn't do it with emotion as much as the clarity with which the words were delivered to you. Mm -hmm. And I think about coaching and, and sports coaches and how often players will take things personally. And sure it's really hard for them not to when someone's yelling at them, um, <laughs> which is a whole story for another day. But right. like coaches will always say, don't take it personally, just take the message that we're trying to deliver. And so when I work with athletes who work with a coach who's a yeller, yes, would I rather that coach not yell as much? Sure. But when I'm working with the athlete, it's trying to help the athlete figure out how do I take the content and leverage it and use it so that I can learn and grow and develop right. rather than pay attention to the, the tone when it's like that. Mm. Um, so it's just interesting to hear how clear you are on the content because your dad and your mom knew when to speak softer or louder or whatever mm -hmm. it might be. Back to your identity. So you're a jock growing up. You, you mm -hmm. love sports. What was high school like for you being uh, you know, you were into football and then you talk about basketball. And yep. um, so talk about your identity in high school and what your experience was like socially, sure. athletically, academically, hit on all the buckets. I was a multi-sport athlete. My brother and I went to public school our entire lives and had a few friends that where we were living in the time in Fremont of the Bay Area, they had older siblings that were at the high school, St. Francis over in Mountain View in the Bay Area. And we applied mostly because the sports were better than they were at our local public high school. And, and I'd articulated to my parents when we moved to the Bay Area at 11 that my dream was to play at Stanford University. And they're like, why, 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 where did that, that come? Sorry, where did that come from? You got parents that are Nittany Lions. Yep. Well, you're, you're, you've got East Coast. Now we're moving out West. It's like, okay, I'm going to be there. How do you, how does an 11 year old you even know what Stanford University is? They took me to a game. I mean, they took me to a game and I immediately fell in love with the atmosphere of being in Maples Pavilion, seeing those student athletes on the court. That was what I wanted to do. That was who I wanted to be. Ironically, 
being in an athletic family, we, we didn't watch sports at home. We barely watched TV. We did a lot of reading. TV was a special thing. We grew up with Sesame Street and Mr. Rogers. We watched Saturday morning cartoons, but there was always a limit on our TV time. You could do extra chores to earn an extra half hour of TV time, but it was limited to half an hour a day. TV wasn't a huge part of our lives and watching sports was not something my family grew up doing together. And I fell in love with Stanford when they took me to a game. They knew I liked basketball. None of them played. They wanted to support me. There was a university that was a pretty big deal, especially at the time when we moved. So we're talking early 90s, Final Four type program. And I fell in love with Stanford and ended up going to St. Francis High School. I grew up playing soccer. Soccer was my first love. Started playing when I was three. Was arguably better at soccer than I was at basketball by the time I reached high school. But basketball at the time was more fun for me. And in California, basketball and soccer are the same sport. They're both winter sports. So I was used to going from soccer in the fall to basketball in the winter and then softball in the spring. And now I subbed out volleyball for the fall. So my freshman year, I played volleyball and then varsity basketball and then ran track and field. My sophomore year, we got the wonderful sport of field hockey. And that became my favorite thing to do besides basketball. It was an easy transition from soccer and sort of a combination of basketball and played center mid varsity sophomore junior senior year loved it played basketball and then ran track again my sophomore year and then played club basketball my junior senior year I was late to the club scene again not having anyone else in the family that played I didn't know that club was a thing that you ideally would do so that you could get seen by college coaches so I was a little delayed in the whole college recruiting process my parents absolutely did the best they could. My high school coaches were really nice guys. They also didn't know much about the college recruiting process. And I applied to Stanford out of high school. I didn't get in. I taped the rejection letter on the ceiling above my bed as motivation to get better. Enrolled in the local junior high school, which was Foothill. Kate Pay, assistant basketball coach now, former player, and I watched Kate play when I was a kid. She's currently on staff with Tara, and her mom was my English teacher at Foothill College. Her mom has since passed, Ann Pei, wonderful lady. She was one of my favorite professors. And so I'm in English class with Kate's mom. I played basketball at Foothill. I applied again after my freshman year, and I got a second rejection letter, but this one came with a really nice note from admissions that said, Elizabeth, we realize you've applied twice. We had a large sophomore transfer class. If you're still interested, we wish you the best with applying a third time. And at that point, I had a Division I scholarship offer on the table, and I decided to take that and sat out my sophomore year with stress fractures and both shins, which was the result of playing multiple sports for my entire life. And then junior year went to UMBC out in Maryland. And it was after I was there that I learned eight players had transferred or left or quit in the two years that the head coach at the time had been there. And I got to experience why and decided at the toughest decision that I made of my athletic career was deciding to leave UMBC. And I was a captain and I was a junior and it felt like such a selfish decision and a betrayal. And yet it was what I needed to do for my long-term health and happiness and well-being. I was out of school for six months. And then in the fall, I started at Claremont McKenna, which again, talk about paying for school yourself. I remember filling out the financial aid paperwork and they came back and said, you forgot to fill out this box that says EFC. 
expected family contribution. And I was like, oh no, <laughs> I didn't forget to fill it out. It's, it's, it's a zero, it's just me. I understand this is $56,000 a year and if we can't make it work, that's okay. And amazingly was able to put together through grants and aid enough so that I left two years at Claremont with $22,000 in loans, which was a, a great deal for such a fantastic education. And I played division three basketball and realized quickly what a disservice the coaching community at large had done for high school student athletes, selling them this idea that it's division one or bust. If you're not good enough to play D1, why bother? I had such a great experience playing division three sports. Yeah, it was not as you know fast maybe as the D1 game, Point guards were now 5'1", five, 5'2", five, instead of 5'8", five, 5'9". Five, there was no lack of competitiveness and certainly not a lack of joy. And, and I loved it. It was such a great way to finish my college career. A lot to unpack there. But one of the things that I often tell parents is let's get clear on what you want your, what you or really what they want their college sport experience to be like. Yes. And this idea that it's division one or bust to your point is just so silly, especially like I work, I've worked with a lot of high school kids whose parents do have means and can send them to Claremont and, and pay their way, but they want little Johnny or Sally to get a full ride to go play, you know, golf or tennis or whatever sport at another school. And I'm like, why? Like, I don't really, what's the end game? What do right. your kids telling me they don't want to play professionally? Um, you're saying you don't want them to play professionally. So what are so we what trying are we to get? Yeah. What are we trying to get here? And I've had athletes who've had amazing division three sport experiences and major, amazing educations as well. Uh, but there is, I don't know if it's like the gear and getting to walk around with the gear. Cause a lot of kids like that's what they care most about, or they see the facility and then they're like, Oh, this is so cool. Or there are delusions of grandeur or what is going on. But I see it a lot and I think it is, it is fascinating. It's also interesting how you were able to problem solve and find solutions at a place like Claremont and really research. And I think a lot of people also don't realize that, that there are grants and scholarships that you can earn that have nothing to do with how good you are putting a ball through a hoop. The Ivy yeah. leagues are the best example. I mean, they don't oh, yeah. give athletic scholarships as I put it in air quotes uh, for those that aren't going to see this, but there's all kinds of opportunities at, at Ivy League schools to get funding, um, especially if you come from a family that can't support you getting there or, or being there. I just want to unpack the UMBC experience a little bit yeah. more. So you can talk as much or as little as, as you want, but you hit on, hey, I felt like I had to be loyal or I had to stay there. You were on scholarship, correct? Yeah. You're, on, you're, yeah. on a, you're on a scholarship, so you're getting an education it sounds like there was a lot of friction in that decision to, to leave uh, yeah. a lot of tension in it. Was there anybody that helped you make that decision? Was there a moment where you said, I just need to, to go? Like if yeah. you could just unpack it, because a lot of people are in that situation where they're loyal. They uh, are looking at and saying, I have to, I have to play this because I can't afford school. Um, there are even others, and you know this, that don't even like their sport. So, which is you know, so sad. Yeah, no there, joy. there's yep. no joy. So, yep. there are potentially people that are listening to this that are in a situation that is not joyful or is not ideal. Yeah. What went into the decision to part ways? Because another person could have said, "Just stick it out. Like you, you just right. just right. do it. Just 
you know, have grit, right? Like just yes. stay with it. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And that, I think that was the biggest struggle for me was I was not a quitter. I wasn't raised to be a quitter. I had a negative association with, with quitting, with walking away from a commitment that you made, especially knowing that I was on scholarship. That for me was the most challenging thing, that and the felt responsibility to others. I came in as a junior transfer. I was elected as one of our captains by my teammates, my new teammates, um, six months on the job, and you're gonna walk away from these people that, that value you, that support you. And, and I almost didn't because of that felt loyalty and responsibility to others. The financial piece, honestly, never, that, that didn't cross my mind. You're giving up a full ride and how are you going to pay for school? That wasn't on the radar. My dad from his fencing coach received a belt buckle that I believe my brother now has. And it says the future belongs to those who hustle wisely. And you can get really creative when you're broke. And it's a great skill to learn to hustle early. I think that was our, our version of grit growing up. My family never had a lot of money, but we learned to make the best out of the resources that we had. And that decision, when you talk about a moment, Brian, I was, we were on the road and we were in Virginia and you likely know from traveling, it's often the case where you wake up in a hotel room and it takes a second to remember where you are. <laughs> and so I had that moment. I woke up, didn't know where I was at first. As soon as I realized where I was, I was on Virginia. We were on the road to play an away game. I was immediately flooded with this feeling of sadness. And that was the moment that I knew I had to do something different. It was no longer a choice between felt responsibility to others and myself. I was not okay. And again, this was a time prior to the way that we talk about mental health now. I was not okay. There were things that were going on that, that I won't go into detail about that, that had created an environment for me which was no longer healthy or sustainable. And that was when I made, while it was the most difficult decision. It was the most compassionate and self-loving decision that I could have made. It was very hard. And I ended up not being the only one that left at that time. That didn't make it easier. It was an individual decision. It felt at the time like such a selfish decision. And I sat in that feeling for, for months afterwards, only after starting at Claremont, after having some time and space for making that decision, did I come to understand how important that decision was for my long-term health and well-being. I would not change a thing. And I'm glad that I had the courage to do what at the time was an incredibly hard thing to do, to say no, to be labeled potentially as a quitter, to walk away from felt responsibility and financial obligation, to make a choice because it was good for my health. And that was tough at that age. I think quitting is so underrated. And I think it gets such a bad rap. And I had, I just talked to somebody who was engaged and they broke off the wedding. And I, I said to him, I was like, I think when people do that, it is so courageous because. Because what's the alternative? Yeah. You get married and you're miserable and you have kids. I mean, you have kids and now they're miserable. And that, yeah. like, this, this is a slippery, bad slope that I think a lot of people get into and I'm not judging them for trying to make it work either. Like, yep. you know, having the determination and the desire to try to make it work is courageous as well. But I think our society tends to cringe at divorce or tends to cringe at, oh, they're, they're quitting on their relationship, but they invited all these people to their wedding and they have hotel rooms or yada, yada, yada. And I'm like, yeah, but all those things are material. This is yes. their life. Like this is who, who they're going to be with the rest of their life. And no one should go through life miserable. I'm sorry. It's just, you know, like 
I love my wife. I love my kids. If I'm miserable with my wife, like we need to change something first and, and try to get help and, and find a way to make things better. Right. And if it's not working, like I hope my wife comes to me and says, this isn't working. We would be better off apart. But we are brought up, I can't, I won't say we, I'll say I definitely was brought up with this idea that divorce is bad and evil and something that you shouldn't do. And even today, like when someone gets divorced, my first like innate physical and mental processing of it is like, ugh. And then when I actually sit with it, I'm like, no, you know what? I oh, hope this they're is happy. Good. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. it's been programmed. And so I think it just goes to the quitting piece because I think too often, there is a time, by the way, to stick with things and it's going to be tough sure. and challenging. Situationally, 100%. But yeah. when it comes to your health and when it comes to your wellness and when it comes to how you're going through life, like nobody should go through their life miserable. And right. it's, uh, so I'm glad we, I'm glad we went there. You're welcome to hit on that anymore if you want to, but I also want to go to coaching because yeah, you have it. this bad experience coaching. Um, right. What inspires you to say, and when did you realize, hey, I want to coach. Like, I want to be a basketball coach, and I want to do this job and be in hotel rooms where I don't even know where I am and be on the road and work with kids. Like, when did coaching come in? And, and talk about the experience, what it was like for you to be a coach. The moment I learned you get free gear and you get to wear sweats to work, I was like, yes. No, See, I, I told you. Shallow. I told you gear is just like. <laughs> I'm super shallow. Yeah. yeah. No, it was, I never thought about coaching as a, as a possible career path. And what happened was, you know, grew up wanting to go to Stanford, didn't get in, didn't get in. As soon as I graduated high school, I started coaching summer camp for Tara Vanderveer. So I went from going to camp to now coaching camp. And it was the summer between my junior and senior year. Tara asked, when you graduate, would you like to come back and be the women's basketball intern? I found out later that she thought at the time I was going into my senior year. So she thought I was a year older than I was. So I still had two years to go, but that became the plan. You graduate from Claremont, you're coming right back to the Bay Area, and you're going to be the women's basketball intern. Unpaid position. So I also got hired on with the, the grounds crew and set up for all the major sporting events. I drove the golf cart with the older folks that needed rides to and from their car at the football games. There's, I mean, there's 16 hour days and you hustle, you hustle, you hustle to get this experience. They also hired me, quote unquote, meaning unpaid as the manager for the team because that was the only way I could travel. And so I would be at practice, you know, taping out three point lines in Maples Pavilions before and then folding laundry, switching loads over in the back hallway during. And it got to the place that I was able to have such an immersive experience with Stanford women's basketball. So here I am, 11-year-old me falls in love with Stanford Dream School. 22-year-old me is now finally part of Stanford women's basketball in a very different capacity than I thought before, and yet no less grateful for the experience. And so it was Tara Vandiver asking, do you, do you want to get into coaching? And not even that By the way, can you give people interest. context? Because some people might not know about her. Give, oh, sure. give, give yep. context on her pedigree, history, Stanford women's basketball. Just, just hit on it. Give us yeah. the points. I would say Stanford women's basketball, for those less historically in the know, you would compare it to Pat Summit or Gino Auriemma, the UConn, the Tennessee of the West Coast. And Tara's been the basketball coach there for, gosh, is it 30 now? close, real close to 30 years. Don't quote me on that number. She took over the program at a time where it was not anything special and she built it into a nationally competitive program and has continued to, to achieve that level of success over time. 
So Tara was this legendary, again, in the, the same ranks as Pat Summit, as Gino Ariyama, as the long-term greats in women's basketball. So it was such a privilege and a, an optimal learning experience to go to Stanford and to be in this environment day to day and learn from their staff. What I didn't know when I signed on is there's five Vanderveer children. Tara is the oldest. Heidi Vanderveer is the youngest. There's 10 years between them. At the time I was working with Stanford, Heidi was coaching in the WNBA with the Seattle Storm and the late Ann Donovan was the head coach. And so the off season for the WNBA was the college season. So Heidi was always around and it was maybe my fourth or fifth day on the job. I went into one of the assistants' office at the time and she said, Betsy, I need you to help me remember something at today's workout. I said, okay. She said, I, I need you to remember, remind me to tell the freshmen about their orientation meeting. So I grabbed a pen. I started writing on the back of my hand. This woman I don't know is sitting in a chair and she says, what are you doing? I said, oh, I'm writing it down so I don't forget. She said, you're not in college anymore. Don't write on your hand. And that was my introduction to Heidi Vanderveer, which we joke about all the time because at the end of my year with Stanford, before the season was over, Heidi asked Anne to fly down from Seattle, said, I want you to meet this intern that we have, Betsy Butterick. I think she'd be great for an open position on their staff, which was as the equipment manager. So I met Anne, all six, seven of her in the back hallway of Maples Pavilion while folding towels. She folded a few with me. We had a conversation and then I was in and I left Stanford, went right to Seattle. Sue Bird and Lauren Jackson are on the team. And I had a phenomenal time at 23 traveling the country with eight giant gear bags because I had the big gear bags. They gave me my own suite at very nice hotels around the country, $60 per diem a day, which I didn't eat $60 worth of food. This was great. I was living the life at 23, spent that season with the storm. And then the university of Washington hired an entirely new staff. I got on as their video coordinator. The year after that, Heidi got out of the pros back into college, becoming the head coach at Occidental college in Los Angeles asked me to come be her assistant. I did. We were there together at Oxy for four years. We won four championships in the four years we were there and then made the move to UC San Diego. And we won two championships in the three years we were there. And so to win at two different divisions was such a phenomenal learning experience. And I would have stayed coaching with Heidi for forever. I never desired to be a head coach. I loved my role as an assistant. I loved being that supportive person, that sounding board for the head coach, that support for the the student athletes and for me coaching was something that allowed me to be with people at what i felt like was a really important time in their life in a really supportive way i lived for those aha moments where they suddenly understood something or did something that they'd never done before and it was while i was at oxy that we took a trip to the bay area for a tournament our athletic director came with us there was a message on my phone after one of our games and it said betsy if Heidi says it's okay, I want you to take the van, drive up to San Francisco. There's someone that I want you to meet. So I drive up on a rainy San Francisco night to this dimly lit whiskey bar. In the back is my athletic director sitting at a table with this woman. And she says, Betsy, this is Sue. Sue coaches leaders. I think you have a lot to talk about. And my first question was, I'm sorry, you, who do you coach? I hadn't heard of this term or this team leaders. And it, it was it wasn't until that moment that I realized coaching was something that existed outside of sport. As soon as I did, I knew, yes, that's the thing. That's the thing I feel most called to do. And I started pursuing my education as an integral coach. And I got my certification just over a year later. That was in 2011. And I began coaching coaches while I was also coaching basketball because having played in junior college division one, division three, and then worked in division one, division three, division two, 
I saw this need for there to be someone for coaches who was not an immediate member of the staff, who wasn't a mentor, who wasn't a significant other, who was simply there to help them grow and develop in ways that they wanted to so they could be at their best to then give their best to the student athletes in their program. And I thought, how cool to be able to serve the athletic community like that. And it was in 2015 that I ended up stepping away from basketball and into my role as a coach and communication specialist full-time because I'd reached the point where I felt like I was no longer giving my best to either. And that didn't sit well with me. So I made the decision to leave. Otherwise I'd I'd still be coaching with Heidi. I lived in a gorgeous little (laughs) studio apartment, three blocks from Wind and Sea Beach in La Jolla. We were a championship program. I loved who I worked with. And that's a big distinction in coaching, the difference between working with and working for. And not everyone can say that they work with the fellow members of their staff and with their head coach. And Heidi was forever a with person, but it started with Tara. So I went from one band of ear to the other and, uh, and learned so much. I had such a privileged education in sport because of the, the people that I worked with and learned from. What have you missed the most in the past five years, not being on the bench or being involved in the day-to-day of the basketball team? Obviously the gear, Brian, we talked about that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I miss, I, miss the, I miss those aha moments. I've had the opportunity to do a little bit of, of skill building one-on-one on court, you know, in my local community type of coaching. I get the opportunity to work with many teams now as a communication specialist, with many coaches one-on-one as an executive coach. So those needs are filled, but I miss the, the individual instruction, the off-season work, the in-between, the in-between celebrated moments. So outside of games, like the gritty stuff, the stuff nobody sees, the stuff nobody talks about, but that means so much to the individual when you help them do something or understand something or believe that something is possible for the very first time. That's what I miss. What makes a good sports coach and what makes a good executive coach? And there may Ooh. be similarities, differences, but I'd love for you to unpack that for me. Good question. This was a source of great depression. <laughs> While I was in coaching school, I went to, I got my certification from a place in San Francisco called New Ventures West. I chose that school for its, its methodology. The three central questions that I was challenged to answer were, who am I, what am I to do, and how am I to serve? And I love that service piece specifically. And I thought sport coaching and being the eternal optimist would make me a fantastic life coach. And what I realized, the third session in person, so we met four times over the course of a year for four days at a time, 10 hours a day. So you're doing 40 hours of in-person work. There was 20 of us in the class. The third time we met is when you had to declare whether or not you were doing what's called going for certification. So would you come back to San Francisco for the fourth time and meet a complete stranger, someone who had signed up for executive coaching, and you were given two hours to do intake assessment and design and have the initial coaching conversation to help this person who very you know, realistically wanted help. And so I declared that I wanted to go for certification. And one of our instructors pulled me aside and she said, I need to tell you that the ways in which you have been successful as a sport coach will not serve you in coaching other people. And how did that sit with you? I mean, you want to talk about an identity crisis? It felt like who I was as a person was not enough to do this work I desperately wanted to do. The more articulate reality of that comment was that 
my eternal optimism prevented me from meeting people where they were. And what I learned over time was cheering someone up was more a function of me not feeling comfortable with where they were. And I had to learn and undo the optimism, the positivity, and cultivate the ability to meet people where they were and sit with them in that space and hold space for everything that they were feeling to be valid and then to move with them as they dictated at their pace while monitoring that edge towards a greater outcome that they determined. And that was challenging. So I'll just share a quick story. So we have different paths because first of all, I wasn't as good of a basketball player as you were and (laughs) very jealous about that, but that's, we can talk about that when the mics are off, but I, you know, I got my master's in sports psychology out in the Bay Area. So okay. we share that and did sports psychology where most of my focus was with athletes. And I too did an executive coaching program. And I remember my supervisor saying to me, because I, I had become very how heavy, right? Like, mm. well, how are you going to get there? And well, how, 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 how? And in a lot of the coaching programs, they want you to ask what questions. Um, more collaborative it's coaching is about action but more of an exploration to get to the how question and he once said it perfectly this my supervisor said it perfectly he's like brian you've got all this talent and you're really good with your right hand i'm just asking you to dribble with your left hand that's great it was so good he's like let's just just dribble with your left hand for a little bit we're not getting rid of your right hand and right yeah i don't know how you feel about that comment that that woman made but I don't think she's right. I, I, and I'm curious to get your thoughts, but I think yeah, it's a part of who you are is to be optimistic and to come up with solutions. And like you have to bring yourself into the room while still managing and monitoring yourself. Right. But for me, when he said that, I, I was like, okay, I still need to be authentically myself and bring the tools and the techniques and all of this stuff that I've cultivated for the last decade with sports psychology. But I just need to cross over and use my left hand because if I just go with my right hand, someone's going to take a charge or I'm going to get out of control. Sometimes you just got to be able to go cross over to the left, even if yeah. it's a little uncomfortable for you. And that, that's what a great analogy. And I think at the time it was a gut punch. The, as I said, the, the more articulate reality, the truth in that statement was it would be a barrier for me being the best I could be. And And it was sourced from a place of she knew how badly I wanted to make a difference in the lives of others in a lasting way. I think oftentimes life coaching, so to speak, gets a bad rap as it's a cheerleader for people's life. My clients cry on the regular and I see tears as a good thing because their information change is hard, especially navigating big change in the moment, whether you want to or need to, those are very different ends of the spectrum, but change is hard. And it was interesting because our very first session at the end of the fourth day, the 20 of us were in the classroom and, and each of us was given a focus for the year. And they were unique and specific to what the three faculty members had learned about us in the time together. The woman next to me to my left was a 57 year old Indian woman who her entire life had been, as she self-described, the dutiful daughter. Her challenge for the year was a year of orgasmic pleasure. Mm. So I was super stoked. I'm like, yes, what's my challenge gonna be? What I got was my challenge for the year was to sit with suffering, my own or others, without moving to fix it or change it. And that 
at 26 was something I'd never done before. I'm the person that living in LA at the time, when I see a homeless person at the top of the off ramp of the freeway, I'll find something in my car to do because empathetically, I feel so much for other people that I think part of my optimism was a, an intentional or unconscious distancing from that which I knew had the capacity to make me very sad, to make me very hurt, to, to open up in me feelings that I would rather not experience because they didn't align with what was happening in my life. What I needed to build was the muscle of resiliency, the capacity to hold space and meet people where they were. And I'm so grateful for what she said. It was a, a dark couple days, two weeks maybe, where I really questioned whether or not I had the ability to do the work. Once I differentiated to your analogy point that it wasn't that I had to stop using my right hand completely. It was that I needed to become more skilled with my left so that I had the balance and then could more appropriately meet each person that I would do this work with wherever it best suited them. Cause that's what this is about. Coaching is about other people. It's not people always say, Oh, you coach coaches. So you tell them how to coach. No, I will never tell you how to coach. And I can act as a mirror for what you're doing and likely help you do it more effectively or in the way that you aspire to, to do. So, yeah. Two thoughts. One, when I went through my program, the other big thing was I kept saying, I want to add value to my clients mm -hmm. and they'd be like, dude, it's not about you. <laughs> you just need to create space for them and then they'll yeah. add the value to themselves. And I needed that. I needed to hear that. And then my second thought is, but here you are on what's today, Monday. Yeah, it's Monday. Friday, you decide, Hey, I'm going to do this webinar. Right. And then Tuesday you're going to present it. Yeah. And so within four days of this crisis, you have, you told me before we started 500 people signed up. For yeah. our, and that doesn't happen unless you have this insane desire to help people. And so fix it is probably too far, but there is still something inside of you that you're leveraging to action. Right. And I, we even talked about before we fired up the mics, you're not going in to try to fix these people's problems, no. but you're trying to give them some space and like, Hey, let's come up with some solutions and let's see what we can, what we, we can create. So to me, it's not like you've gotten rid of that piece that just wants to help make the world a better place. And you're yeah. leveraging that to action, but now you're using a framework that is one of listening and understanding and meeting people where they are. And that mixture, I think is really, really cool and really beautiful. And so. Thank you. That, yeah. That's been something that's been big for me. Like I, I'm a connector. Like that's yeah, what I do. Like I love connecting people. Yeah. And so for me, Yes, it's adding value to my clients and I'm going to connect them with somebody who might be useful for them. To hold that back is to sacrifice the gift and the gifts right. that I have as well. Fontaine, love that quote, yep. Yeah, so pretty like, and so like my talent, I have, to, I have to leverage that, but I also just have to be aware of when it's more about me and less about them and when it's more in service to me versus in service to them. So everything yeah. you're talking about really resonates with me. The other thing I'm really curious about is communication. So yeah, I know every, we haven't, haven't talked about, we've been talking the whole time. We've been communicating, Brian. <laughs> but like every leader that I work with knows that communication is key. Right. Every team and organization knows that communication is key. Yep. How do you think about communication? 
what are some tips or tools or frameworks that you found that help your clients communicate better? Talk to me a little bit about communication and, sure. and, and what makes a great communicator. Yeah. And multiple questions there and a really broad topic. I'll start with, I'm intentional about calling myself a communication specialist, not an expert. I think it would be very egotistical to say, I know everything there is to know about communication. And I will tell you how to do it. This is always a talking with versus talking at conversation. I learned so much from working with whether it's departments or teams or speaking at, at conferences or events. I learn about communication all the time. And that's why it's my favorite subject matter is we will never hit the ceiling of what there is to know about the nuances of communication, how we can become better communicators. I also love that it's a skill. This is something that in a world of uncontrollables, especially, and we feel that now, this is something that anybody with even a small amount of attention can get better at starting today. It is such a doable thing. And you just said, every leader, every team knows the value and the importance of communication. And yet ask those same leaders and teams, how often in your average day do you spend time intentionally working on your skills and abilities as a communicator? We spend roughly 86% of our day involved in some form of communication. And yet we tend to only be intentional about it when we have something important to say or writing an important email, or a proposal, or a recruiting letter, whatever it happens to be, if we were to bring that amount of intention to our total day, the world I, I truly believe would be a better place. So much of the work that I do as a communication specialist is helping programs achieve the kind of communication that they know they need or want to have in order to achieve their greatest success. There's not a right way to do it. The right way is whatever's best and what's agreed upon by the people in your program based on the goals that you have. One of my favorite things to do is <clears throat> working with a team, and I had the ability to do this with Iowa Women's Field Hockey for the second year in a row, is I'll go and I'll watch training sessions. So I'll come in for a two-day period. I'll watch their training sessions. I'll make notes on communication. I'll go to lunch or dinner with their staff, and we'll dialogue about it for two, sometimes three hours of, tell me what you meant when you said this. And it always comes from a place for me of curiosity. You know, what are we saying? For what purpose? How or what would it look like if we were to make a small change, either in tone or in language, if instead of a statement, if we were to ask that in the form of a question? And we do this all the time as coaches, oftentimes without thinking about it or with good intentions. In time constraints, we'll say something. If you want to make for sticky learning, instead of telling someone, ask them. And if you can capitalize on that double click with not just asking them and letting them tell you, but then having them do something. I love the Socratic method of teaching. It goes into deep learning where there's coaches I see who will say, we're going to do this and this is how you need to do it. And this is why you need to do it. And then there's others who may say the same thing. And then they go into questioning. They say, so what are we doing? How are we doing it? What's the purpose? And then when they stop a drill, instead of saying, you need to be over here, they'll ask, where do you need to be? because of, and they'll insert whatever the goal or purpose is, whether it's offense or defense. Then you allow the individual a deeper level of learning. You also allow the others around to start to learn. And I love this work, there's no ceiling. And so how do we help coaches individually? And there's a joke that started about developing an earpiece and we're gonna call it the distant assistant. So many coaches have said, oh my gosh, Betsy, like, can you just be in my ear when I'm gonna have this team meeting? Like you just articulated so well exactly what I'm trying to say. And there's this gap often for many coaches between intention and impact. 
we think we're being very clear and in our own words to the best of our ability we say this thing that is so important for our team to hear and then they hear a very different kind of something so my job is essentially to help develop the skills and give tools to our communicators our coaches and our student athletes so that we're communicating more effectively we're reducing the amount of miscommunication so that we can start to intentionally build the chemistry that we know is needed to achieve high levels of success I have a made-up job and it is incredibly fun and it's I've been doing it long enough now that people say you know what this is really valuable there were a lot of gems in there and one thing that's become clear for me so when I was in grad school it was housed in a psychology department and once again a supervisor would say Brian you could have asked a question there rather than mm -hmm. giving an answer and it didn't really stick with me to be honest for a long time um it didn't stick with me till I got to this point where I actually need to find a question that I don't know the answer to. Mm. And yes, I understand the stickiness. And if someone comes to it on their own, how it can stick with them more. But what I've found to be even more profound is to ask a question that I, I actually don't know the answer to. Yeah. And that's, that's that, communicating. That's, that's connecting. Right? That's the purpose of well, a question. Yeah. 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 And for me, that, that took my ability to coach to a whole nother level because now I wasn't asking it just out of like the tool of asking the question. Because right. to me, that can be inefficient. And Absolutely. people I work with, time is one of the biggest barriers for them. Yeah. So I always tell them, look, if I have something, I'll ask you if you want me to share it and then I'm going to share it. Um, and that's what I do. But for me, what's even better than that is to understand that the geniuses that I work with are geniuses and the people that I work with each have an inner genius inside of them. Yeah. And so for me as a coach, my job is to ask questions that I don't know the answer to that they don't necessarily know the answer to. And that to me is learning and growth. But when you're working with, let's call it head coaches, yeah. their job is so hard. And you know this because you've been one seat over to, to head coaches for a long time. They have to be the expert. They yes. have to know what to do. They can't just be Socratic leaders. Like they, they have to be able to tell someone you needed to be over there, especially when they're performing and it's a game and they need to do that. And they have to know when to ask questions or you see the best head coaches, they'll pull over their senior captain, put their arm around them and say, hey, what do you see out there? Because they know yeah. that that point guard might see things that they're missing and they'll leverage yeah. that. So I'm just curious for you as you navigate those waters, how much of your work is coaching the coach by asking those questions and going deep and how much of it is providing them with those tools and frameworks so that they can communicate better. So the earpiece element of like, Hey, this is potentially a way you could say it versus the traditional life coaching, which is like, it's not about you and asking questions. How do you navigate the communication piece that you have become a specialist in with yep. the coaching piece, which is coming from a framework that as a specialist, my job is to ask them questions and have them tell me the answers. How do you mm -hmm. navigate those waters? Good question. The, what I found is it's really a blend of both. What I mean by that is there's My job as a coach is to work myself out of a job as quickly as possible. And to do that by getting the individual that I'm working with to a point where they are self-generating and self-correcting. 
awareness is a prerequisite for change. We can't change what we're not aware of. So step number one in either capacity is helping individuals or teams or programs become more aware of how they're communicating. So then they can individually and collectively choose or have the option to make changes in a way that would benefit them individually or collectively, and ideally both. That's where the work starts. And then from there, it builds into, you know, how do I work myself out of a job as quickly as possible? By giving them the tools and illustrating to them the choices that they have, the options that are available to them, so that they are then in a place to make the best decision for the moment. Coaching is a fluid thing. And yes, there are absolutely moments where given time or circumstance, we need to be able to be that leader who says something instead of asks something, while also having the ability in a different context or time or with a different individual to ask a strategic question or to make a comment. It's giving people the ability to have more tools at their disposal so that they can be situational. Coaches that have the ability to be situational are really successful coaches. Coaches that do it one way in all circumstances and situations tend not to achieve the kind of success they'd like to have seen for individuals. My role is to facilitate that learning to the point that now they feel like it's theirs, where they have an elevated skill set to engage in any situation, especially things like difficult conversations, confrontation, in a way that they feel confident about and that they can select the right tool given the time, given the person, given the context, given the situation. Great leaders are versatile leaders, are adaptable leaders. They're chameleons of situations and they know how to respond given what's needed and what's being asked of them. My last question before we wrap, because we've been going sure. for a while, you use that word confrontation. And yeah. I once had a general manager of a NBA team tell me, we need to value confrontation. And yeah we need to have the best idea in the room win. And I don't care what the title is. We need to be able to confront each other. I love that word. Yeah. A lot of people don't. A lot yeah. of people are afraid of it. How do you help people lean into confrontation, especially if it's something that they want to lean away from? Sure. And a lot of us do. And, and I have an entire workshop and webinar on confrontation for connection. How do we have these types of dialogues in a way that intentionally builds trust and relationship? The way that I start this work is, and I just did this recently at UCLA with their athletic department, is when we think about things like conflict and confrontation, I'll ask them, and if I'm doing this with a team, sometimes I'll send this as pre-work, but what comes to mind when you think, when you hear the word conflict? And then we write all the different words that come to mind on a board. What comes to mind when you hear the word confrontation? Do the same thing. And I'll say, okay, which of these words do you view as innately positive? If we've got 100 words on the board, they're going to pick like six or seven. And this goes to show, it's an exercise that demonstrates very early, the way we as a society view things like conflict and confrontation is more negative than positive. The first thing we have to do is shift how we think about these things, knowing that when we change our perspective, we can have an entirely different experience. And I have a few exercises around this. Once we've done so, I'll ask them to rephrase in the positive if we didn't call these difficult conversations, if we didn't call them conflict and confrontation, what's verbiage that you could use that means something to you that speaks to the way that these conversations have value, that these are the exact conversations that when done well, build trust and relationship with other people. An example, when I was 23 and started coaching, I was roughly the same age as some of the student athletes that I was now tasked to step into that coaching role with. And 
So I needed to be able to have these difficult conversations. And at 23, I was absolutely someone that would freely admit, I don't like conflict. I don't like confrontation. I avoid it whenever possible. For me, that starting point of changing my perspective was I returned those confrontations as caring conversations, which you can judge away, sounds super soft. For me, it meant I cared enough about the student athlete or the goals of our program to have what would otherwise for me at that time be a more difficult or challenging conversation. So when we think about these things differently, we can have a different experience with them. The counter to that is starting to develop intentionally skills around how do we have these conversations well? What does a confrontational structure look like that supports a positive outcome? What are the questions that we need to keep in mind when we're having this conversation? Are we intentionally creating space to understand the other person's point of view? And I go into a lot of this work in the, the online course that I have called Winning with Words, Championship Communication for Coaches. And it talks about these different skill sets, tools. Again, anybody can develop these. These are things that anybody can do. The reality is most of us have had a negative experience or many with conflict and confrontation. And we've never been taught how to have these conversations in a way that yields positive results or how to do them well. These are things that we can learn. Anybody can. Let's start and have better conversations. I love it. I, first of all, your energy is awesome. Uh, your smile, she's Betsy's, they're not going to see this. So Betsy's got this big <laughs> smile and this presence to her and it's authentic. And so thank you for, for being you. Thank you for the time. Uh, if people want to learn more about what you're up to, uh, your website, social media, I know yeah. you're on Twitter, where can they find you? Absolutely. The website is Betsy Butterick. Last name is B-U-T-T-E-R-I-C-K. I appreciate when people spell my first name, B-E-S-T-Y. I promise I am not the best. I just give great effort. It's B-E-T-S-Y. So BetsyButterick.com is the website. If you search my name on YouTube, there are 30 ACT videos. ACT stands for Active Communication Technique. All of these videos are roughly two minutes in length or less, and they're designed to give anybody something they can do today to impact the way that they communicate and connect with other people. So I'd say start there. Go to the website. You can follow me on Twitter at Betsy Butterick. I'm on Instagram as Betsy underscore the coach's coach. And if you really want to start to do some intentional work on your communication skills, aside from a workshop or a webinar, check out the online course. This has been the passion project of mine that I've worked really hard to put together knowing that I can't be everywhere, but I didn't want that to preclude individuals from starting to develop the skills that we so desperately need, especially in the athletic world to improve our communication so that we can deliver a higher quality experience for our student athletes and generate greater success for ourselves and our program. So check out the course Winning With Words if that would be of value to you. But I would love to connect with people in this space. Thank you for your time. If you're still listening, wow, congratulations. And Brian, thank you so much. I, I feel like we could talk for hours and, and I look forward to having the opportunity to do so. But thank you for making the time and being intentional about this space. And, and I appreciate it. Uh, this has been fun. And uh, people don't know this. So they, they spell Betsy B E S T Y. So bestie sometimes, and they yep. spell my name B R A I N brain oh, really? <laughs> all the time. And it's, uh, it's amazing. I would say it happens once a week. It's yeah. Starbucks it's says it a lot. I don't know. <laughs> like if they're trying to be funny or yeah, so yeah. I'll take brain, you, you be brain and bestie. I'll be bestie, you be brain. Cool. Yeah, I think it'd be a nice combination. And I really believe the work that you're doing coaching coaches is the next frontier as it relates to how they're developing uh, sports teams. And I've talked about this with a guy named Cody Royal, who came on the podcast. I spoke about this with um, a woman named Miranda Holder, who's been on the podcast. Uh, and 
I, I am all in like pushing all my chips in. Cause I think that the biggest way we can make an impact is to equip our leaders in athletic departments and in pro athletics as well in high school, whatever with the skills, like you're talking about communication skills, whatever those skills are that, that leaders need. And, and we could go on and on about what those skills are, but also providing them space to explore and a safe space because their jobs are so hard. And Oh, so hard. Yeah. Like, I've been there. I know. Coaching sports is so hard. Mm-hmm. And we now see executives whose job, C-suite executives, whose job is also very hard. And we see them getting executive coaching. It has become much more the norm. Yet we still are not there yet with our head coaches of our sports organizations. And we need to be because they need help. And most of them want it. They just don't know exactly how to do it. And so I'm excited about what you're doing. I'm working on some stuff in that world as well. And so I know we can collaborate in the future, but uh, thank you so much. I'm on Twitter at Brian Levinson, Instagram, intentional underscore performers. You can listen to all these conversations at intentionalperformers.com. Betsy, thanks for the work that you're doing. It's important work. Thank you for your time and uh, excited to hear more about how your webinar goes tomorrow. I'm sure it'll go great. Thank you, Brian. It's been a pleasure. Take care, everyone. Stay safe, wash your hands, and thanks for your time. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. We spend roughly 86% of our day involved in some form of communication, and yet we tend to only be intentional about it when we have something important to say, or we're writing an important email, or a proposal, or a recruiting letter, whatever it happens to be. If we were to bring that amount of intention to our total day, the world I, I truly believe will be a better place. 